Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash apologia. But for now, let's get to the episode. Part of the Just a Bite series, posted April 20th, 2022, titled The Case for Jesus Mythicism, featuring Godless Engineer. Do you believe in Jesus? No, that guy doesn't even exist. He doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. He doesn't exist. Do you really think Jesus is in this room? Does not exist. He does exist. He doesn't exist, except on paper. Yes, he does exist. You saw Jesus? Does he exist? Because he does never seem to come in. The man does not exist, okay? Is Jesus real? Maybe he doesn't exist. Maybe he never did. Who is this Jesus? Does he not really exist? Most likely does not exist. He doesn't exist. He doesn't exist. He doesn't exist. You meant that he doesn't exist. Right. Welcome to Apologia, where a former Christian takes a look at the claims of Christians, though today we're looking at the ideas of some non-Christians. If you follow my channel, you've probably noticed that when I'm talking to Christians, I tend to grant that Christianity was based on a person, or an amalgam of people, who existed in history. In general, I don't think my arguments against Christianity are harmed by making such a concession. That said, Many put forth that the historical evidence for the rise of Christianity is best explained without a historical figure who walked the earth, including my friend, Godless Engineer. Hey, Paul. This topic is one of my passions, even though I don't claim to be a historian, nor am I an expert. Fair enough. Nor am I. But in your view, what's the best case for mythicism that convinced you? Currently... The full peer-reviewed hypothesis is described in Richard Carrier's On the Historicity of Jesus. Raphael Ataster's Questioning the Historicity of Jesus establishes a good foundation for remaining agnostic on the topic. Both works contain extensive footnotes and citations establishing that they are consulting the full range of academic sources to establish their positions. I highly recommend either book. Sometime around the turn of the first century CE, the Jews began to scour the Jewish scriptures for information about the coming Messiah. Our first indication of this is Philo of Alexandria. Philo was a diaspora Jew that was busy syncretizing Judaism with surrounding pagan and Hellenistic ideas. Syncretism between Hellenistic ideas and other religious beliefs was a trend occurring at this time and place in history. Mithraism was a combination of Hellenistic and Persian ideas. The mysteries of Attis and Cybele was a syncretization of Hellenistic and Anatolian ideas. The mysteries of Isis and Osiris was a syncretization between Egyptian and Hellenistic ideas. During this time of syncretization, Philo describes the Logos of God. This Logos is described by Philo to be the firstborn Son of God, the celestial image of God, God's agent of creation, and God's celestial high priest. 
He connects his logos to an already existing archangel figure in Jewish angelology. He cites Zechariah 6.12 as a reference to this archangel, establishing that one of the names of this angel is Yeshua. So Philo establishes that there was an effort by some Jews in the first century to find more information about the coming Messiah. This Messiah was a pre-existent archangel that had been foretold in the Jewish scriptures. Next, we have Paul, who independently also identified a Messiah for Judaism through hallucinatory visions and scripture. Galatians 1, 11 through 12, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8 indicate this. Paul clearly separates himself from any historical source concerning the gospel of Jesus in Galatians 1.11. Paul claims that Jesus Christ is the firstborn Son of God, which is in Romans 8.29, the celestial image of God, which is in 2 Corinthians 4.4, God's agent of creation, which is in 1 Corinthians 8.6. Separately from Paul, but contemporary to him, Hebrews records that Jesus is God's celestial high priest, which is contained in Hebrews 2.17 and 4.14. We also have Paul confirming his gospel is the same as the apostles Cephas and James the Pillar, so more than one Jewish Christian apostle had noticed these things. So obviously, Paul and other Jews similar to Paul were also syncretizing Judaism into a new religion that believed the Messiah foretold in the Jewish scriptures had come and absolved sins. Just like with Philo, this follows the trend happening in the area. After Paul's epistles, all of the references to Jesus are dependent on Paul's work. The Gospels really only have Mark that is somewhat independent, although it heavily relies on Paul's work. All the other Gospels copied off Mark. Non-Christian sources are ultimately either fabricated, like with Josephus, or they just regurgitate what Christians were claiming at the time. The early church fathers, like Papias, Justin Martyr, and others, were not concerned with the historical nature of Christianity. They only cared about the theological truth of the religion. As far as we know through Paul's epistles, nobody was ever a disciple. They were only ever apostles, which meant that they had received a vision of the resurrected Jesus and not experienced Jesus before his death. All the evidence lies with Paul and what he thought about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So if Jesus wasn't a real historical person, then where did his death, burial, and resurrection take place? There are plenty of documents that we can use to give us a picture of what early first century Jews and Jewish Christians most likely believed. Paul's epistles, Hebrews, first century Christian texts like the Ascension of Isaiah, and Jewish texts like the Revelation of Moses can all give us insight to the early beliefs of Christians. Whenever Paul refers to Jesus' birth, he uses words that are more indicative of manufactured rather than birthed. Paul also describes Jesus' body as being similar to Adam's body and our future resurrection bodies. These are all manufactured by God. This would explain why Jesus' lineage never mattered to Paul and the early Jewish Christians. God had guaranteed that Jesus had Davidic lineage by creating a body of Davidic flesh for Jesus to use. Hebrews 9.22-24, while not written by Paul but contemporary to him, claims that there exists copies of everything on earth in the heavens. The songs of the Sabbath sacrifice, 
which would be 4Q400-407 and 11Q17 of the Dead Sea Scrolls, describe several levels to heaven that include more perfect copies of the Jewish temple. Paul's own theology admits that there are multiple levels of heaven in 2 Corinthians 12, 2-4. The Ascension of Isaiah 7:10, a first century Christian text, claims, as it is above, so it is also on earth. For the likeness of that which is in the firmament is also on the earth. That would include crucifixions, which makes Jesus' crucifixion in the lower heavens something they plausibly would believe. When Paul talks about who killed Jesus, he describes them as the, quote, archons of this aeon, or, quote, rulers of this age. This would be a weird way to refer to the Romans if that is who he meant, given that later Paul identifies Satan as the, quote, archon of this world. We also know that the phrase, quote, archon of this aeon is commonly used at this point in history to refer to Satan and his demons. So it's reasonable to conclude that when Paul uses these terms, he's referring to Satan and his demons rather than human authority. According to the revelation of Moses, Jewish beliefs included the idea that Adam's body was buried in the heavens. Paul claims in 2 Corinthians 12, 2-4 that a man was taken up to the third heaven where paradise, known as Eden, is located a notion which is also contained in the Revelation of Moses 37, 4-5, 41-2, and 2 Enoch 8 and 9. Considering that Jesus' body was manufactured similar to Adam's body, it's quite plausible that early 1st century Jews and Jewish Christians thought Jesus was also buried in the heavens. At the very least, this idea would not be preposterous for them to believe. Paul identifies key Christian doctrines as, quote, mysteries. In 1 Corinthians 2, 7, 4, 1, 13, 2, 14, 12, 15, 51, Romans 11, 25 through 26, and 16, 25 through 26. Mark's Jesus states that public stories are told to outsiders while the true meaning of the message remains only for believers. There is a distinction made within the New Testament documents between mature and immature believers. This is the exact structure of a mystery cult. Mystery cults are identified as any Hellenistic cult where individual salvation was gained through a ritualized initiation into a set of mysteries. You would then receive eternal life due to the sacrifice of a savior that experienced a passion where they defeated death. We also know that mystery religions like the Isis and Osiris cult thought their savior's death and resurrection only ever occurred in the celestial realm. Public stories placed the savior on earth, but the private teachings revealed it all happened in the celestial realm. In Philippians 2, 5 through 11, Paul is admitting that Jesus humbled himself by taking on a body of flesh and shed his godlike appearance. Jesus, a preexistent being, descended, died, and then ascended back to his former glory. This is similar in nature to the ascension of Isaiah. In this first century Christian text, Jesus is seen as descending from the upper heavens, shedding his godlike attributes, and taking on a physical form in the lower heavens. In this physical body, he is persecuted, crucified, and killed by Satan and his demons. He is then buried and resurrected, after which he ascends back up to the upper levels of heaven where he retains his godlike image. All this incredibly resembles a mystery cult beyond mere coincidence. So, Paul could have plausibly believed that Jesus was a pre-existent celestial figure that was made flesh via a manufactured Davidic body. He was then crucified and killed by Satan and his demons in the celestial plane right above the earth where those other celestial beings also lived. Jesus was subsequently buried and resurrected on this celestial plane 
where he then ascended to the upper levels of heaven, regaining his godlike image. This explanation makes the most sense of the phrases that Paul uses, as well as Christianity's connection with mystery cults. Starting with Philo, we have the Messiah of Judaism being identified with a pre-existent archangel figure who is named Jesus. Paul claims that Jesus became flesh and died, was buried and resurrected, all because the scriptures claim he did, as well as having that confirmed through hallucinatory visions. A plausible explanation for Paul's more ambiguous verses is that he considered Jesus only ever to be a celestial figure that performed all these events on a celestial plane right above the firmament of the earth. This is the minimal mythicist hypothesis found directly in sources that we have. So, as you know, mythicism stands opposed to the current consensus in the New Testament scholarship, including some secular scholars like Bart Ehrman. Is that enough reason for lay people like us to just go with historical Jesus? Typically, you should be able to trust the consensus. I trust the consensus of scientists on things like climate change and evolution, but I trust the consensus because the evidence they cite substantiates it. I feel like New Testament studies do not have the same kind of evidence to support their consensus. This field is full of scholars bound by statements of faith requiring them to hold inerrant views of the Bible. This lack of academic freedom directly affects the conclusions that New Testament scholars come to. Bart Ehrman even agrees with this assessment of New Testament studies when he acknowledges that suggesting the resurrection wasn't historical would be considered a fringe position. This field also punishes those scholars that even step slightly out of line. For example, Mike Lacona lost teaching positions and speaking engagements for merely suggesting that Matthew's zombie walk when Jesus died wasn't literal. It's fair to be skeptical of the consensus when the field lacks academic freedom and punishes those who don't strictly adhere to faith-based doctrines. To ascertain whether Jesus was mythical or historical, we must understand who exactly we are looking for in our historical evidence. We would be looking for a rabbi named Yeshua who gathered a following of disciples, who angered the Jewish elders, who then had him executed. I feel like that's a pretty bare-bones description of a historical Jesus that most New Testament scholars and historians would agree to. It is a functional description because we already have evidence of such a person existing. The Talmud describes a Yeshua that gathered disciples and was executed for his deeds. The problem is that this Yeshua lived at the beginning of the first century BCE. He lived under the reign of King Janaeus right around 80 BCE. When comparing this Yeshua to the Yeshua we would need for Christianity, he was put to death for sorcery and not blasphemy. He was executed directly by the Jews via stoning in a completely different city. His disciples were also killed directly after his execution. Apologists will often use this information as evidence that Jesus Christ existed, but scholars have shown that this Yeshua couldn't be the same one that founded Christianity. So if the Jesus of Christianity actually existed, we should be able to find evidence of him. Well, we have secular sources for Jesus walking the earth. Right? Most New Testament scholars would say Josephus proves Jesus existed, but recent scholarship has shown that Josephus most likely didn't write anything about Jesus. The testimony of Flavianum was probably a complete insertion by a later Christian similar to Eusebius. This is shown to be most likely the truth by several scholars in New Testament studies. We know that the testimonium doesn't have a previous version where it's less Christianized, and we also know that the verb usage within this particular testimonium doesn't match how Josephus uses verbs elsewhere, the story structure doesn't match Josephus's other writings, and the story structure also mimics the Amos Road story from Luke. 
This all leads us to the idea that a Christian similar to Eusebius probably inserted this passage. Tacitus is generally brought up as well, but he is regurgitating common Christian beliefs of the second century that he probably received from Pliny the Younger. At best, Tacitus verifies that Christians were in Rome in the 60s CE, which wouldn't be surprising. All other secular sources come from a time where independent sources about Jesus are impossible due to the early circulation of the Gospels. What about the undisputed letters of the Apostle Paul found in the New Testament? The best evidence against the minimal mythicist hypothesis is Paul's ambiguous references that could go either direction on historicity. These would include Galatians 4.4, where Paul says that Jesus was born of a woman, and Galatians 1.19, where he refers to a, quote, brother of the Lord. I don't think any of these verses are evidence for either historicity or ahistoricity. The mythicist explanations for both seem to explain all the information better than a historical explanation. For instance, with James the, quote, brother of the Lord, the word used for brother can either mean a blood relation or a fictive kinship. Which one does Paul mean? Many could claim the natural reading would indicate a blood relation, but this stands in stark contrast to how Paul uses familial terms. Paul commonly uses fictive kinships to refer to other believers in Christ. In Galatians, when he addresses the entire group of believers, he calls them brothers and sisters. Paul refers to other Christians as being his brother, stating that this one instance, other than another that appears in Romans 9, 5, means a blood relation as opposed to how Paul always refers to fellow Christians sounds like cherry picking. Galatians 4.4 4 talks about Jesus being born of a woman, but there's a few issues with the interpretation of a literal birth. For one, Paul uses a different word when he refers to literal human births. In this section, he uses a word that is more used to indicate manufactured or created. Another issue with Galatians 4.4 4 is that it is contained within an allegory. It doesn't make sense that Paul would be referring to a literal birth. The more parsimonious reading of this section is that he thinks Jesus had a manufactured Davidic body meant as an allegory for being born into sin. That sinful body was killed and then a sinless body resurrected. It's meant to teach about how Jesus' sacrifice, quote, cures the state of being sinful. Later in Galatians, Paul literally says that it is an allegory and these allegorical women he speaks of are Sarai and Hagar. It makes no sense to suggest that Paul meant a literal birth. Other than a few other verses in Paul's epistles that are better explained with a mythicist understanding than a historical one, that is all of the counter evidence to mythicism. What about the Christopher Hitchens notion that because two competing birth narratives had to be created to explain why someone known to be from Nazareth was actually born in Bethlehem? But the fabrication itself suggests something. If they were simply going to make up the whole thing, and there'd never been any such person, then why not just have him born in Bethlehem right there and leave out the Nazarene business? So the very falsity of it, the very fanatical attempt to make it come right, suggests that yes, there may have been a charismatic, deluded individual wandering around at that time. That's a good question. Paul never identifies Jesus as coming from anywhere in particular. The notion of Jesus being a Nazarene first comes up in Mark 1.9. At this point, neither Mark nor Paul know Bethlehem should be a place of origin for Jesus. Matthew's Gospel gives us more insight into where people were getting this information about Jesus by appealing to the Scriptures. He does this for both Nazareth and Bethlehem. Scholars like Eric Laporte, J.S. Kennard, and Rene Salm 
ultimately conclude that there was a misunderstanding of OT scriptures that resulted in Jesus hailing from Nazareth. Personally, I feel like the most we'll be able to determine is that the gospel writers were interpreting the scriptures to gain information about Jesus, and during that process, Nazareth became attached to Jesus. Then, subsequently, Bethlehem as well. They considered both prophecies to be correct, so they had to harmonize them in some way. The authors of Matthew and Luke have their own unique ways of connecting the two places. It's commonly said by scholars like Bart Ehrman that Nazareth and Galilee in general were backwoods areas that are akin to rednecks from the southern U.S. Ehrman concludes that this wouldn't help advance the Christian narrative, so that must be a true fact about Jesus. This notion about Nazareth stands in stark contrast to what we know people thought about the area during Jesus' time. Herod Antipas commissioned many projects in Galilee and even had a city built in honor of Tiberius there. Galilee was known for for its exceptional oil exports and its governorship was highly coveted, as indicated by Josephus. But even if we assume that Nazareth and Galilee were both backwoods areas that were denigrated by the population, that would exactly fit with the Christian message. All the Gospels use the theme of, quote, the least shall be first, unquote. And the Old Testament is rife with God using unlikely people to complete his tasks, i.e., Gideon. So using a generically named Jew from a backwater area of the Middle East to complete arguably the most important task God has ever given to someone seems right in line with both Jewish and Christian thinking. One minor thing that is generally brought up is the fact that claiming an itinerant rabbi gathering a following in the first century isn't that big of a claim. It's so mundane that you should automatically assume it's true until you can prove otherwise. That seems incredibly lazy to me. If I'm going to say that Caesar crossed a Rubicon, I should be able to prove that with various types of evidence. We can do that with Caesar, but we can't do that with Jesus. Saying that he existed as a matter of history should be supported by evidence. If he did exist, it should be easily proven given the amount of Christian writings that we do have. Alas, we have no direct evidence that he did exist. Just a few vague verses from Paul that could go either direction. The historicity of Jesus isn't as solid as the consensus would have you believe. Well, thanks, John. That was incredibly informative and has given us all a lot to think about. We have limited time today, but check out and subscribe to the Godless Engineer channel not only for some of the best mythicist advocacy around, but also a unique look at the kinds of topics we normally cover here, like science, creation, Christianity, and apologetics. But with a spicier edge, if you like my content, you're going to like his as well. And before you go, drop a note in the comments. When it comes to Jesus, are you a historicist, a mythicist, or something in between, and why? Then tap on the thumbnail on screen now, for an old school GE Apologia team up, and I'll see you over there. Later.